Welcome to Police in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate us and head to patreon.com, find Tordishak and support us in bringing all of this content to you. This week, we return to the topic of the policing of domestic violence. Before Christmas, we heard from Mary in Cork about her battle over the last 15 years with her abuse effects. Today, we hear from another woman, also named Mary, about another side of domestic violence. Mary tells us about being in a marriage in which she was abused for decades and what happened when she finally turned to the police for protection. What they do is, is the consequences of me getting this protection order and I never imagined that I wouldn't be protected. It never occurred to me. Out of necessity, this episode includes details of sexual, psychological and physical violence. If you're affected by these issues or concerned for a loved one, there are plenty of organisations you can contact and we'll provide these details at the end. We'll also hear from Dr. Marion Duggan, senior lecturer in the University of Kent with expertise in sexual gender and hate-based violence. We start with Mary telling us about being that young woman who met a man. I can remember, uh, I, I remember meeting them, but, but I wasn't that impressed with him. <laughs> but um, anyway, he kept at me and asking my sister about me and all this sort of thing. So in the end, I said I would go out with him for a little while. I said, but I'm going to New York. So, you know, like as long as you know it's going to end there, you know. You know, I, I was happy and, you know, he seemed happy with that, or so I thought. But anyway, when it came time to go, I went and he followed me over. Now, that should have been a bit of a red flag. Um, because, you know, I wanted to explore. I wanted to, you know, get to know myself, as to say, and, you know, have have just a different life. Anyway, I got he came over and um, he... I could say he raped me. I hate saying that. But anyway, he did. And I, what to call it, I remember thinking, I didn't want that. I didn't want that to happen. I wasn't ready for that to happen. Uh, anyway, there was, there was other occasions when he would start a fight over if, if another man asked me to pass him his beer, pass him, you know, something. But I would get, I would always feel upset because I felt um, I shouldn't have done that, maybe. Maybe I gave him cause to be that way. But then he could change and be the most wonderful person. In fact, he would be the most wonderful person most of the time. Um, I couldn't fault him. He just was an impeccable gentleman, you know. So anyway, I remember um, I was living in Long Island and I moved into the city uh, to be with him. I was only with him a short time when he wanted to go home and get married. And I was going, I had become engaged at this stage to him, you know, but I thought a long engagement would suffice, you know. <laughs> and and in fact, when I think of it, it probably would have been better because I would have got to know him, you know. But anyway, he wanted to come home all of a sudden and get married. And I was there going, oh my God, I'm, no, 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 don't want to get married, don't want to get married. And he just was going, oh, it'll be brilliant and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll do the other and what to call it. Um, anyway, <laughs> he convinced me that it would be a good idea. And how long did you know him at this point? Two and a half years. But like at this, like, I mean, you only saw him at weekends and things like that. But when it was when I moved in with him that he he wanted to rush it. And uh, with hindsight, I can realise why. So they returned to Ireland and got married in 1988. Two weeks after we got married, we were driving from my mother and father's house um, on, th- on this little side road 
outside Banali, it's so, it's like, it's such a narrow little road, or it was then, with only bushes, you know, around the place. Anyway, he pulled the car in. We weren't fighting. We, I was all, you know, happy and jolly and excited for the future. And he just pulled the car in and grabbed me by the throat and shoved me out the door of the car, you know, like this, you know. And him roaring and shouting at me. And uh, as quick as he lost his temper, he regained his composure, sat back in, uh, put his seatbelt back on and, in, and said, nothing happened. So my mind went completely berserk. What happened? I couldn't, couldn't compute it. I just couldn't compute it. And the words domestic violence did come into my head, but I was saying, no, domestic violence, um, no, that's in in other people, that's with other people, you know, um, that doesn't happen to me, or, you know, couldn't happen to, with that nice man, and, you know, these sort of things, words were coming into my head. So by the time we had arrived at this place in Carlo, I had filed it in some part of my brain, which completely got rid of it. So it, I think it's called induced amnesia or something like that. They moved to Galway City for work. Now there had been occasions before that where he would give me the eyes if I had been talking or anything. You know, he'd do these eyes at me. You know, this sort of thing. So it would shut me up immediately. But I passed no heed on it. You know, I, I, I automatically just thought, oh, God, I'm saying something stupid. Didn't know what it was, but just as a mom, saying something stupid now. Okay. Anyway, uh, the next thing he wanted was to have a baby. And I was going, oh. Now, I am very Catholic. And I said, well, if it's God's will, you know. But, and it, you know, so I did. I got pregnant after three months. Uh, like I have, a, I have a very strong belief in God, you know, and I still do. Because if I didn't, I would have committed suicide. Their daughter was born in December '89, and as things progressed, he engaged their daughter in the violence. He wasn't much good of a helper with the child. <laughs> surprise, surprise! But he had me trapped. He had me well and truly trapped. So. My cousin happened to be home from New York during some time around then and she actually told me lately that she noticed him behaving disrespectfully to me. But I was totally oblivious to it. Roll on the years and um, what do you call it, he was extremely violent um, with her. Well, um, he, like he would start a fight with me and he would always go down to her bedroom, wake her up, so that she would be in on the on the on the fight. And she would be reaching out for me, and I would go to take her, and he would pull her away. One time I can particularly remember is when he was threatening to go and drive off a cliff and kill the two of them. And I was down on my knees begging him, please, 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 please calm down. Please, please, please. I'll do whatever you want, you know, please calm down. So uh, eventually, like uh, we're talking hours, he would calm down. And of course, he was delighted with my reaction. He was absolutely delighted. I would have been, you can imagine, in an absolute state. And that was what he wanted. So he did that, you know, that happened a few times, a good few times. But he always blamed me. And what's absolutely horrendous is I believed him. I believed him that I had said something wrong, done something wrong, whatever. I believed him. Domestic abuse tends to follow three phases. The tension building phase, the violent battering phase and the reconciliation, loving phase. Once abuse has begun, it not only continues, but will become more frequent and severe. 
as time goes on, these three-phase cycles begin to deteriorate. The tension-building phase becomes shorter and more intense, the violent, battering incidents become more frequent and severe, and the reconciliation periods become shorter and less intense. Victims thus become more vulnerable over time. Oh, I forgot to say that he, he didn't give me the children's allowance. So I had no money. I didn't, didn't even have enough money to buy a pair of knickers. That's the truth. Uh, he, um, yeah, he had all the income and for some reason, even though he was supposedly on good money, there was never any. So it was very hard, very, very difficult. Not wanting her daughter to be alone, they had a son when their daughter was about four and a half. Her husband decided at this point to start his own business. Which literally meant that for the next seven years he wasn't making any money. So I had to work two jobs. Um, but needless to say, I had to pay for babysitters. I had to pay for absolutely everything. He was working for himself and uh, I think he, he uh, paid the mortgage every month. That's all I can remember. I did the account, his accounts as well and got nothing for it, you know. Used to make tax returns and everything. For seven years anyway, that went on. And uh, I was just totally and utterly neglected. Never any support. Still fighting. But I came to realise and notice that the fights only happened at the weekend. When he came home from drinking, uh, he would be in a good mood for a fight. So I says, right, I have to step around this. So I stopped staying up watching the film. I made sure the children were all in bed. Sometimes I would have to go out with him. You know, he would want me to go out with him for this drink. But of course, he knew that I wouldn't drink and that I would drive him home. Um, so he often would would um, have a fight, like we say, a kind of a quiet fight in the pub. You know, he'd say something to me. So I dread it. Oh, my God, I would dread those occasions. I remember what he would insist, like I was in my 30s and I know it's not old now, looking back I wasn't old, but I, w- I felt like an old married woman and going into these places like, oh, that place in Galway, um, all these young ones around and them all, you know, dressed up to the nines and them looking for a partner or a husband, like I was not on sale or whatever but he'd be there you know and, and indeed they would come up and start talking to him and you know whatever like I was I felt so insignificant so insignificant but I was there to drive him home <laughs> The fights were regular at this point and increasingly violent I remember him one time coming home I had stayed at home at this stage and he came home and he began breaking the chairs on the table getting the sweeping brush and breaking presses. It was absolutely terrifying. It was so scary. And we had we had dim old doors. Um, you know those doors that are hollow in the centre? And he put his fist through it. Mary didn't feel like she could talk to anyone about it. I was afraid to, and I was ashamed. You know, and women's aid was the only thing I knew. And women's aid are great for talking. You need actual practical help. That's what I needed, practical help. She reached out for some support. So at this stage, um, I said, you know something, it's not me. I just, I knew it wasn't me. I said, but he needs help. And I'm, you know, and I said, I'm going to get him help. So, <laughs> uh, the first place I brought him was the Catholic, Catholic Marriage Counselling Service because I wasn't going to be told to leave that man. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the innocence of me. But anyway, went into this little old lady in the Catholic, Catholic Marriage Counselling Service 
and sure she was a little dear but the only thing they knew about was somebody who wouldn't help you empty the dishwasher <laughs> you know they hadn't a clue about real violence she asked him what do you think the problem is and he would oh it's communication it's a communication problem she's not listening to what I'm telling her and she won't do what I tell her and you know <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite amazed at this you know that so for all the years I don't know how many years I was married at that stage but I had been afraid to say you're violent to him but this was my opportunity. So when the woman asked me what was wrong, I said, he's violent. And she said, oh, well, give me an example. So I actually, I gave her an example of what happened when we had been on holidays the previous summer. And uh, he, oh my God, he used to tell me he was driving off and he was, he was driving off some nights. He was banging presses other nights. He was going to stay in France. He wasn't going to come home with us. And he was going to get a new life. Anyway, I had told her told her some stories anyway that had happened. And she was shocked. And she rolled her eyes to heaven. And I knew then that I wasn't going to get any help. She tried speaking to a psychologist. It was hard to get somebody who seemed to know exactly the dynamic. Because I got blamed. Now I realise I should have got no blame. He, um, the psychologist, did give me a light bulb moment when he, he saw us together and then he saw us separately. And when I went to him separately, he said, look at Mary, he says, I can't do anything with him, but I can help you. And I see what he means in a way because a narcissist doesn't want to change. But I said, look, at he, he's got a problem with drink. That's I always saw it. It happens when it, when he's drinking, and he says no, he doesn't. And I went, yes, he loses control when he has drink, and because that's the way it's happened. And he went, oh no, 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 he's very much in control. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, look at when he's out in the pub, does he fight with any of the other people in the pub? No. Would he fight with the barman or anyone in there? No. Uh, would he fight with a taxi driver on the way home? And I went, oh gosh, no, no, no. So who does he fight with? I said, me. He went, yeah. He's very much in control. And he knows who he can fight with. And get away with it. And it's you. This all chimes with what we know about accessing support for domestic violence. Research from England and Wales tells us that 85% of victims sought help on average five times from professionals in the year before they got effective help to stop the abuse. On average, victims experience 50 incidents of abuse before getting effective help. 78% of high-risk victims report the abuse to the police in the year before they get effective help, on average 2.8 times. Indeed, leaving can in fact be one of the most dangerous things that a woman can do, as it often prompts the most extreme violence. For Mary, as time went on, she realised she couldn't resolve this. Uh, and I was got fantastic at tiptoeing around it. I would spend weekends uh, up in my mother and father's, I would spend it at my sister's, my friend's anybody's or I would invite people down for the weekend and have them down because once I wasn't on my own with him I was safe. The psychologist encouraged her to share with some friends which she did. This gave her the support of two friends who would literally come and take her from the home as needed. Her kids would ask when she was going to leave him. And I used to to go God I wish I had the strength because I used to spend so much time in bed because I was so drained I didn't know that I was, I had several, several breakdowns, several breakdowns. And I didn't know how to handle it all. Because I, I, I didn't know, it was like living in a fog. It was absolutely uh, the most horrendous feeling of powerlessness. And this horrible dictator had the power over everyone. 
In 2012, her mother died and two years later, her father also passed away. Her family home had been an important place of safety for her, so this was a huge loss. She'd also lost her job because of being unwell, but she somehow found the courage to seek a protection order. I, I got a protection order in, in that year as well. That was 2015. That's a really big step for you. Oh, humongous. I was terrified absolutely terrified because I felt disloyal but I knew I had to stand up for myself and I said the only way I'm going to get peace is to get him out of this house. I went and I got this protection order and uh, I was terrified when because he would get notification at the house. Terrified but Anyway, oh yeah, I had bought a mobile home and I had moved it into the garden because we have a big garden at the back. And I said, I'm going to live out there until he's gone out of the house. I thought I'd be safe out there, but he didn't leave me alone. He used to walk around the perimeter. You know, I could be on the phone and next thing he'd hear it. A protection order is granted by the district court where there are reasonable grounds for believing that the safety or welfare of the person applying or their dependent require such an order. The protection order prohibits the respondent from using or threatening the use of violence against, molesting or putting in fear, the applicant or their dependents. If residing elsewhere, it prohibits them from watching or besetting a place where the applicant or their dependent lives. And it prohibits them from following or communicating, including electronically, with the applicant or their dependents. The protection order is a temporary order and usually only lasts until one of two other types of orders can be sought, a safety order or a barring order. A safety order bans a person from further threats or acts of violence. A barring order bars the abuser from entering the home. Much of this has been significantly updated by the Domestic Violence Act 2018, which sets out what the court can consider when making such an order. Breaking an order is a criminal offence, which is imprisonable by 12 months or a fine. It's really important to think about the criminalisation of this issue. As we've talked about previously, in an episode of The Beat with Katie Dawson, the 2018 Domestic Violence Act made coercive control a crime, and it outlines the circumstances in which breaching these orders is an offence. It's important to know that there isn't a simple offence of domestic violence. Every act of violence in the home is a crime. It's an assault. Sometimes it's a very severe assault. It's the same as an assault in any other context, although the 2018 Act does make the domestic nature an aggravating factor in sentencing. So someone who assaults their partner can receive a longer sentence than someone who assaults someone in a pub, for instance. But legally, our fixation has been on providing civil remedies through the orders I've discussed. We'll come back to think about what approach is best for victims later. Relationships with Mary's children have become very strained. Because, see, he had been um, saying terrible things about me to her behind my back and I didn't know. He had been doing crazy stuff, like hiding things on me. He engaged in a range of gaslighting behaviours, which he could then use to undermine her with the children. But armed with the protection order, Mary thought she now had the law on her side. So I got the protection order and... uh, his brother was a guard down in Cavan. Uh, never thought of any connection. Never thought that that would be a, a connection. But I do know that he did go to the guards about me after I had got the protection order. But didn't, still didn't think that it would make any difference. I still thought that that protection order was that, well, it might as well have come from God. It was that important. Anyway, he, um, this night, anyway, of course, he was at his usual. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd come into the house for the winter. And he had said to me, I'll sleep in the front room uh, so I won't go near you. And for some reason, I thought, okay. I thought the, the protection order was working, you know, and that he was behaving himself a little bit. But of course it wasn't, it was to get me in so that he could annoy me again. 
So he started started at me again and I said, right, I said, I'm I'm calling the guards if you don't get out of the room because he was in the room. I'm calling. He went, go ahead, call them. So I um, called them and they weren't long about coming out. But when they came, there was two female guards. They brought me into one room and told him to go into another one with the children. And she looked at this uh, protection order, which I gave it to her. And she said to me, this is useless, this is no good. And I went, why? What's wrong with it? And she says, it's no good. And I went, well, that's the one that the uh, solicitor gave me in the courthouse. And she says, no, it's no good. No. And I went, but if you don't do something, I'm going to have to leave. Because, you know, you might as well have told me I have no protection. And you can imagine what that is going to go down like for him. She went, well, you better hurry up because we have somewhere else to go. Oh, my God, Almighty. I flew out of the house with the clothes on my back, terrified because, obviously, my thing that I had got to get him out of the house, to leave me there to finish rearing my children because my, my son was still in secondary school. It all went down to Swanee as far as I was concerned. What happened was a far cry from what she expected when she phoned the Gardaí. Well, I expected them to go, OK, Mary, what happened? Tell them, which I did. I told them what happened. And uh, uh, they to say, right, uh, come on with us. Uh, you're in breach of that order. You uh, had your wife in fear. And uh, that's uh, one of the things that that protection order protects her against. So you'll have to come with us uh, and, I don't know, put him in a cell for the night. Because that man is afraid of nobody and afraid of nothing. And I thought that that would put him in a little bit of fear. Just a little bit of fear that, okay, Mary has a little bit of power now. And, you know, down the line, it would be quite possible. In fact, I would be hoping that I would have got a safety order and get him out of the house altogether. So you weren't actually expecting that that first night? Oh, no. Oh, total shock. Total. At the very least, if she had said something to him, uh, tell him, you know, that protection order is... Uh, like, I mean, they're not easy got. You know, it's not like the judge hands them out willy-nilly. Academic research shows us in numerous jurisdictions that the policing of domestic violence has, until recently, been highly dismissive. This is in part due to elements of the police culture, and I spoke to Dr. Marion Duggan of the University of Kent about this. Well, traditionally, we've had this gender discrepancy. So, you know, a very male-dominated, masculinist outlook in the police force. Um, and as we know, traditionally, victims of domestic violence tend to be women. So at the point in which academic research started looking into domestic violence and the treatment of victims generally, and in the criminal justice system specifically, there was a, a real focus on the minimising or um, dismissing of victims that were coming forward. And this was often because, um, in some cases, the police would mix professional and personal biases or prejudices or stereotypes that often fed into wider cultural ideas of you know, women as lying or deceitful or wanting to get partners in trouble, making things up. Um, so there was an issue first with having domestic violence taken seriously by the police and then having it being taken seriously as, as valid police work. So... Again, we see traditional dichotomies between like, the kind of hard cop who's going out there chasing criminals and the maybe car chase and high-profile crimes. And domestic violence obviously doesn't manifest in that way in a lot of uh, cases. So it was aligned to something that was considered more kind of rubbish work. Like we've seen in feminist research of the dismissal of domestic violence along the lines with drug users, homeless people, um, you know, it's kind of beneath real policing or valid policing. 
Then there's the historic lack of appreciation of the power dynamics and dependence at play in domestic violence situations. So because a woman may later withdraw her allegations, often because maybe she hasn't received the support she needed to see it through or the nature of the relationship at hand, this justifies the police viewing it as rubbish work that's never going to go anywhere. So when she phones the next time, they're less interested in responding. Some research even suggests that there may be higher rates of domestic violence among police themselves than the general population. And some work from England and Wales says they're half as likely to be prosecuted for it. I did a ride-along once when I asked the Gardaí about responding to domestic violence in the traveller community, which we know to be a really big issue, only to have the guard say, ah yeah, you can refer to the refuge, but she always goes back. That judgement of the women's action often undermines police responses. Marion explained to us some of the positive developments emerging from the UK. Most recently, we've seen the um, Ask for Annie initiative, um, which is an acronym for assistance needed immediately. Um, this was where some pharmacies um, decided to be a, a point of contact for victims who could go in, ask for Annie, and then that's the pharmacy would know that they were a domestic violence victim or in need of some sort of support or intervention at that point. And this was something that we saw initiated by several supermarkets during the um, initial lockdown, where victims were seeking help outside of the home. Um, so diversifying where people can go to for specialist support as maybe a referral or a single point of contact is important because it may be too dangerous or it may be in some way impeded them to be able to access domestic service, domestic violence services directly. Um, another thing we've seen is the police using body-worn cameras. So um, there's some research been done into that, but early indicators suggest that they've certainly proven to be effective in increasing the numbers of suspects charged. Uh, when it comes to the you know, evidential test in a, a court case, it can be quite useful to have that sort of evidence at the point in which the the crisis situation is happening and the police responded. We've also seen a greater use of technology in safeguarding victims, so everything from tagging or GPS for perpetrators through to um, the installing of technologies in domestic violence victims' houses, either when they live with perpetrators or are still in contact through childcare, etc., where it functions similar to kind of a 999 call, but it goes straight to the police. And, and they know where the person's calling from and the circumstances under which they're calling. Other indications of best practices include multi-agency working, routine domestic violence specialists, the police, education, welfare, housing representatives, etc. And we have MARACs, multi-agency risk assessment conferences, where like all the relevant people will sit around the table and discuss a case and put in place safeguarding measures for a particular victim. That level of uh, communication between social and criminal justice networks is very important. And better communication and case filing on things like the police national computer and databases, so across jurisdictions, certainly working in favour of safeguarding victims. This sounds a world away from what Mary experienced. Drove to uh, Athenry. Um, I sat in Supermax for I don't know how long and going, what am I going to do? I said, I can't go round to Helen's because he'll know where I am. Um, so I happened to ring up, up this girl that I had gotten to know in with the child care course who was separated from and from a bully as well. And I asked her, could I sleep on her sofa? So that's where I slept for months. Uh, I knew he didn't know where I was, but I was so afraid. I was terrified of him finding me. She was homeless and separated from her children while he turned them against her. As regards how the guardie should have responded, Mary is very clear. Oh my God, if a woman has a protection order, give her protection. You know, she did, She doesn't have it for fun. And she doesn't go to the bother of getting it because it's fun to get. Like, I mean, I stayed 27 years. 
So I had put in everything into that marriage to succeed. It's protection we need. It's absolute. And know that we will be protected. You know, don't be in any fear that you won't be protected. What does that word mean to you, protection? Protection. To be safe from him. That you're on my side. That you will take this bully out of my life, take him away from me. You do, like, I mean, the paper on its own is no good, but what they do is, is the consequences of me getting this protection order. And I never imagined that I wouldn't be protected. It never occurred to me that, that, and especially in a way, another female. You know, I thought, oh my God, such ignorance. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I think that's the thing that strikes me. Like, it must, like, it took me 27 years to make that call. Yes. Yes. And to be so let down. The word protection is hugely important and it's powerful to hear Mary talk about what it means or what it would have meant to her. This is now at the centre of the Guard's current strategy, which is achieved through Divisional Protective Services units. These units, which now exist in each Guard division, aim to deliver a consistent and professional approach to the investigation of specialised crime types, including sexual crime, child abuse and domestic abuse. Personnel assigned to DPSUs have been provided with a training course, which specifically covers investigation of sexual crimes, child protection, investigation of domestic abuse, online child sexual exploitation and sex offender management. These units have been rolled out since 2018. It's important to note that this level of training is essential for Garda safety as well as for victims. We remember Garda Tony Golden, who was killed in 2015, responding to a domestic violence case. In 2017, the Gardaí published a domestic abuse intervention policy, which is available online. This in itself is positive, as very few Garda policies are actually published online. The policy provides guidance regarding obtaining background information for first responders, gathering evidence, providing advice to victims, the undertaking of follow-up actions, pulse recording, liaison with TUSLA, and intervention to prevent escalation of abuse. The guards are also rolling out a risk assessment toolkit for domestic violence, but it's not multi-agency, like what Marion talked about, as far as I know. The policy calls for full criminal investigations, stating any breach of the criminal law coming to the attention of investigating Gardaí should be fully investigated. The policy declares that Angarda Siakana has a pro-arrest policy, which means, as stated, where the investigating guardee has reasonable cause to suspect that an offence has been committed and a power of arrest exists, she or he should utilise that power of arrest even if no order is in existence. I was pleased when I first heard about this, thinking that arrests are important for an investigative perspective as they help gather evidence, but the space can also aid victims in determining what they want. But Marion tells us that the research might indicate otherwise. The research that arose out of the pro-arrest policy that was put in to try and address some of the issues that were arising around domestic violence. Uh, several police forces were directed to go in and just arrest everybody and work it out at the station, effectively. And this didn't necessarily improve the status of, um, of victims and, and try to reduce domestic violence or try to improve responses to it. It just created a heap of new problems and often put victims in additional risk because perpetrators would know what was going to happen. In December 2020, Gardi released some data on the response to domestic violence during COVID under Operation Fuishev. Some incredible work has been conducted in the space of reaching out to victims. Between January and October of last year, Gardi contacted or attempted to contact 20,000 victims. It's a little staggering to think that there are that many victims known to Gardaí. Since lockdown commenced, they have seen a 17% increase in calls for support. And while reporting that over 200 prosecutions have been initiated, what we see is that these prosecutions are for breaches of barring orders. Gardaí do not publish data on arrest rates, so we've no idea how many people have been arrested for domestic violence offences or whether the pro-arrest policy is actually being enforced. 
but the prosecution data would suggest that if such arrests are being made at the scene, then they are not leading to prosecutions. I asked Marion if increased prosecutions were inherently a good thing. I don't really see what our current criminal criminal justice system in terms of prosecution in prison does to address domestic violence. I, mean, I know there's perpetrator programs, anger management programs, violence aversion programs, those sorts of programs. But they're not always implemented, they're not always relevant, they're not always specific to the dynamics of the abuse that took place in that relationship. So I don't know if they would necessarily prevent future victims. Um, just a mere prosecution and a punishment isn't necessarily going to prevent future victims. So from a victim-focused perspective, I would like to think that we would have a response that was more preventative-focused. So address the factors informing and sustaining a person's engagement in domestically abusive behaviours and also work with the victim, of course, as well. This is really important to think about in terms of a police response. What do we want to achieve through the law? Is it just to criminalise offenders or do we want to protect victims and reduce the levels of domestic violence? And this is really striking when we put it in the context of trauma, as we have done in other episodes, and the fear of intergenerational trauma. Jay Mulcahy talked to us in the last episode about how having a parent sent to prison can be an adverse childhood experience in itself. Marion challenges us, or at least me, to think differently about what the police are doing in these situations or why. So I think essentially some of the traditional policing responses we've seen have shown a real gulf, those is the best word, between what the police and the criminal justice system are designed to do and what victims need and want from that justice system. And these don't always marry up. And we've seen these issues arise in different ways with different types of victims. So more recently, uh, recognising men or people who are very young or very old or people from minoritised communities, either not being believed or not being responded to in a sensitive way or a productive way, or not really feeling comfortable enough to engage with the police. I think domestic violence first and foremost is something we need to set apart from other types of interpersonal harm. So there's a relationship there between the victim and the perpetrator that existed before the incident, will likely exist after the incident, and may have been an element informing the incident. Now the police and criminal justice system are there to either protect the public or to arrest a person who's broken the law or to investigate, follow up on a crime. And it may be that in a crisis moment, a victim just needs an abusive perpetrator to stop being abusive. They may need some cooling off time. So we have various policies and notices that are designed with that in mind. Or they may well want um, a prosecution to ensue and so they'll be compliant with the investigation and any kind of case that arises out of it. But that may not always be the case. And so this one-size-fits-all due process approach to criminal justice doesn't mirror the way in which domestic violence victims and incidents may play out. So it can be difficult to know what a victim wants because in some cases they may not even know what they want. Certainly at that point, they just want the abuse to stop. Probably like, going forward, they want the abuse to stop. They may not want to see the person who's harming them get into trouble. Um, they may be fearful of breaking up a family. They may not want to have that person end up the criminal record. They may not want to engage with the criminal justice system themselves. So I think it's important that the police and anyone working in a statutory sector takes that as a starting point to find out if the victim knows what they want in that immediate moment or going forward. And if the criminal justice system is the best people to facilitate it. So if it's not going forward a case or if it's not pursuing an investigation, that doesn't mean that there isn't still a need for pastoral care, support or information or some form of safeguarding. And that may be where a wider multi-agency approach outside of the justice sector is more beneficial for victims. 
Mary did complain about her treatment to the Gardaí. I d- did put in a case to GSOC about, about her. I don't even remember the other guard's name. I just remember her because she did all the talking. But GSOC, all they said was that uh, she had been guilty of um, being uh, oh, discourteous, you know, which, you know, that was the least of what she was. So uh, my faith in the guards, my faith in um, GSOC, my f- just is gone. I have no faith in, in any of them. I rang my solicitor to know had she given me the wrong papers. And she said, no, no, of course not. But nobody's, what I annoyed, was annoyed at, that nobody said to me, go back down to the guard station and have a talk with the sergeant. But because I had no understanding of, of that sort of going on, I didn't know that. And um, the people that should be able to tell me i.e. the domestic violence response people, I think they should have been able to know that, didn't tell me. Uh, Which I'm quite annoyed about because that might have made a difference to where I am now. You know, because I ended up homeless. And I found, like I found Raymond, but um, it wasn't exactly the best way to go and find somebody, was it? No, but thankfully he he actually took care of me. He actually cooked my food, washed my clothes, did everything for me. Just looked after me until I got well. I've done a lot of counselling. I've, um, you know, been through various um, people with different therapies and whatnot. But I've also been to people who have never heard of narcissistic abuse. As we heard previously from Mary on the other episode, this didn't all stop when she left and in fact it was all made worse because of how the Gardaí reacted. She didn't seek custody of her children because of her housing situation, but she saw photographs online that her youngest son was on a class trip to Spain. So I got in touch with the school, rang them up uh, and they said somebody will get back to you. So in the meantime, I sent me an email uh, with a copy of the of the order saying that the call was not allowed out of the to leave the country without my permission as well. They were horrified, absolutely horrified, because I could have got them into deep trouble. But I knew it wasn't their fault. You know, I I, I said, <laughs> I know what you're dealing with, you know. But when he was um, had the graduation, they invited me to the grad. The vice principal of the school hugged me and thanked me for coming and um, you know I was delighted that it was made feel so welcome. The parents were a little bit you know now I hadn't really I didn't really get to know many of his 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 friends parents only only a little bit because I was in such a fog I was in I was only a shadow of myself I could never be myself or put myself forward or, do you know what I mean? Like I just was lucky that I had those two ladies, Helen and Anne, on my side and they were the the only two I trusted. But I was so delighted for the vice principal and she said, Mary, I, I have looked up the disorder that you told me about that he has and I believe you. And that was marvellous. That was marvellous. And so I was able to talk to her, say, used to come to the to the parents meeting, you know, the parent-teacher meetings. I said, I used to be afraid to come, I said, because I didn't know how I'd be received, you know. Um, and she said, we know, you know, we understand. They were lovely. They were really, really... It's the smart people that I see understand but uh, my own family don't understand because he seemed convinced. And do you think if the guards had reacted differently, would it have, like, would that have been a signal to your family? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Because it looked like I said, Jenny, Mac, I even know if I'm going to go off and have a good time now. And that's probably what he told them. 
So she was probably having a fairish live right and centre and she just decided to go off and had a good time now. She's had enough of all this child rearing and whatnot. Oh. And look, even the guards. Even the guards could see that, you know. So they, le- oh my God, they were the pits. They were the pits. The consequences. And the consequences of that are, I lost my home. I lost my children. My family don't talk to me. I actually have had to create a new life. This is an incredibly stark example of the importance of how the Gardaí respond to even a first call out. We should never underestimate the power that the police have through their actions to label what behaviour is wrong and what is acceptable. And by not giving her that protection, by not supporting her, the consequences were to label her as exaggerating or even lying. It's important both that the Gardaí operate with that as their frame of reference, but also that others appreciate that things are not so simple and not to attach such meaning to Garda actions. Mary has since been separated from her children. If they want to come back to me, they're going to have to do it. Not through me begging. Not through me trying to buy their love. Whatever. I was a brilliant mother. And I know I was a brilliant mother. And I did my absolute best despite living with that abuse. And I believe in myself now. And I know my worth. Yeah. Women's Aid offer a listening service to those experiencing domestic violence or their supporters through their 24-hour helpline 1800 341 Safe Ireland provides information on 38 domestic abuse services all across Ireland and can help you to locate services and shelters. The Dublin Rape Crisis Centre offer a free national 24-hour helpline on 1800 77 88 88 for anyone who has experienced sexual assault, rape or childhood sexual abuse. And if you need privacy to contact any of these services, Boots Pharmacies now offer a safe space for people experiencing domestic violence. And you can read more about that online. We're deeply grateful to Mary for sharing her experience with us and we hope that her generosity in doing so will result in people thinking more deeply about the issue. Thanks also to Marion Duggan for providing such essential context. Thanks to my producers, Tony Groves and Brian Ahead.